You go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Lamentations. Lamentations. And we have uh, kind of a misnomer in the middle of this that we're in the major prophets. And as we're in the major prophets, okay, that's a, it's a little bit warmer than normal. Uh, in the midst of the, the major prophets, you have a book that's five chapters in length. And you say, well, why in the world would uh, we have a book that is in the major prophets that's five in length, and it would probably just go with the fact that this is written by a major prophet. Uh, Jeremiah and uh, wrote the previous book, which we said was the longest one according to Hebrew language uh, and words. It's the longest of the major prophets. And uh, along with that, you have then the book of Lamentations that he wrote. And so it was just kind of almost always assumed to be the two together. And uh, they just put it that way. And so as we go through the major prophets, you have this very small book but it does not mean it has a minor message. Uh, in fact, it has one of the most powerful answers uh, to suffering that you can find. Go through the book. We've already mentioned this. Uh, your author is Jeremiah, and uh, you go, okay, it's Jeremiah. When would this book be written? Well, it's about the destruction of Jerusalem. So you're going, okay, we've got something close to the date. It can't be before 586 that this is written, which is when Nebuchadnezzar came through, destroyed the temple, hauled everybody off except for a few stragglers, uh, and left the city desolate. So it's sometime after 586, uh, it could have been a couple of days, it could have been a couple of months, but by looking at the structure, uh, my guess is that uh, unless the, it's you know, completely the Holy Spirit not using Jeremiah and his thoughts uh, gathering uh, it took a little bit to come up with this as he contemplates what has happened uh, to this city. So it's around 586 after the destruction of Jerusalem that this takes place. And the theme is a lament for judgment. Uh, it is that uh, this book is called Lamentations, and we'll talk about what a lament is here in a little bit uh, more specifically, but it's a lament for God's judgment and seeing uh, the judgment that does take place on those that will not turn and will not repent and will not uh, stop being stiff-necked as Jeremiah constantly called people not to be. So you have the structure of the book. You begin to notice something. If you just read it and look at numbers, you begin to realize there's something significant about the arrangement of this book. You start off and you have the city's grief, as we're calling it. Uh, Jerusalem is personified in that passage, and there is uh, her crying for the inhabitants and the buildings and all else that goes on there. And it is 22 verses, and in each verse you have three lines per verse. You go to the second uh, chapter, and this is God's wrath, where God is declaring why some of these things occurred and why these things had to take place. And you have 22 verses, three lines per verse. You get to the middle passage, which is probably contains the most familiar passages uh, of Lamentations that you could probably quote. 
It has 66 verses and one line per verse. So you're kind of going, okay, so it's got the same amount of lines in it as the previous two. 22 times 3 is 66. So you kind of have that going on. And then uh, you have uh, the sins and consequences. Uh, 22 verses, only two lines per verse in this section. And then the last one is uh, this prayerful confession. It's 22 verses, only one line per verse. So the number that you've got going on as you read through this, and you do see the arrangement being this center structure is the important part, not that the others aren't, but it's working up to this point and then building back down uh, after you get to this point. But you go, why 22? Well, it comes down to this. The reason 22 seems to be a theme is that there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. I was asked you this evening, how many are in the English alphabet? How many are there? 20... 26, yes, there are 26 letters in the alphabet that you should have learned in school. But uh, the structure of the first four chapters is an acrostic, each verse starting with a new letter. So in our language, it'd be the first verse, uh, it would start with the letter A. The first word would start with that letter. Uh, Chapters two and three, you have verses in a group starting with the same letter, and then the next three verses start with the next letter. And so as you go through, uh, you have, once again, it starts with the letter A, and you get to the next verse, it starts with the letter B, and you get to the next verse, it starts with the letter C, and then you get to chapter three, which is the lengthy one, has three verses in a group starting with the same letter. So in there, you have A, 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 first three verses, B, 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 four through six, and it goes through like that. Then, as you get to chapter 5, it does not start with successive letters of the alphabet, but has 22 verses, so it's not alphabetical there. Now, you go, why is it an acrostic? Well, I will say this as far as the Psalms and others. There's a reason that Psalm 119 is an acrostic. Because Psalm 119 was designed to be memorized. So you get through the first eight verses, and you know each verse starts with the letter A. And then you go to the next eight verses and you're trying to go through and go, okay, what does this, this passage have to do with uh, the word? I know the letter, first letter there is a, a B, uh, you know, and you try and go through it. it it's a, an aid to memorization. And so this is something that you go, well, maybe was designed to be memorized even though it's not very pleasant memory work. But then it even goes further than this. The number of words in the Hebrew is 1,540. You count all the Hebrew words, just go through, not in your English uh, translation, but in the Hebrew Bible, what's originally written in. It has 1,540 words, which is 22 times 70. And you go, what's significant about 70? Babylonian captivity is going to last 70 years. So this lamentation about judgment that God is going to carry out is something that's going to last for 70 years. And so there is that element where you're just kind of going through this number 22 is there, and it's just part of the organizational structure. But wait, there's more. When it comes to this number 22, when you come to the the reading of Lamentations, It's this. The second thing to understand is that within the structure, three groups speak, and together they speak 22 times. 
So there's three different groups speaking. You go, well, who's speaking in this as you read through? And, and sometimes if you have a Bible uh, with notes in it, it will actually break it up this way and it will tell you who's actually speaking in the different sections. Uh, but you have Jeremiah the prophet as he's speaking and he as an individual is weeping over what has gone on. Uh, then you have Zion personified or Jerusalem personified speaking. And then you have uh, the citizens of Judah Okay, it's not a person now that's speaking, it's personified for Jerusalem, but you have a whole group of people that are responding to what has gone on, sometimes making statements about how they can't believe the destruction that has gone on, and, and others who are almost uh, in some ways going, I can't believe God did this. And so the following gives a list to understand who is speaking, and so what I'm going to do is give you a list so that you have this. So if you read through this uh, on occasion, you can actually figure out uh, who is actually speaking in these different sections. Thankfully, I didn't give you all blanks there. Um, but uh, it is, um, as you go through, it helps to know what the perspective is. And sometimes as you read, okay, it's the people that are in Jerusalem. You're going, oh, okay. But chapter one is pretty much about Jerusalem crying over her children that are lost and, and Jeremiah responding to some of the things he's seen and then the city itself crying again over what's gone on. We got that one. How about chapter two? You go through and it's Jeremiah and then you have another set of statements made by Jeremiah and then uh, you have Zion speaking. You get to chapter three and I put it down as the Judeans. That's the citizens of Jerusalem that are speaking. And so you have that uh, calculation there, and then I'll go back. You have the Judean speaking again, so Jeremiah, and then Jeremiah has another set of words he says, and then the Judeans say something, and you go through all of that, and then chapter 5, you go, wow, that's loaded with the Judeans speaking. The citizens of Jerusalem and if you look at your outline, you might realize why it's the citizens of Jerusalem that are making statements. Who needs to make confession to God? Well, it's those citizens of Jerusalem that made it necessary for God to judge them. Uh, and so you have that element that's a part of it. So you, you get through it and you kind of go, okay, this number 22, it's organizational. And, and this is something I didn't quite recognize that it went as deep as it did when you look at this. It's a poem with layers and layers of structure to it. Which is kind of amazing because most of the time when people are sorrowful, they make no sense. You know, it's... You, know, you get that type of thing, you know, when your kids, you know, stumble and do something and they try and explain what goes on and you can't understand and it's not organized and they kind of, you know, jump from one thing to another. That's what you would expect and a lamentation. It's kind of what you expect when you see what goes on in the Middle East now when you actually have a funeral take place, and they're all crying, and they're all hollering, and they're all uh, crying out uh, for what has happened, and it's not very organized. It's chaotic. 
And so this is what makes this kind of unique is that this is a lamentation, a cry over the destruction and death that has gone on, but it's very, very organized, which makes it kind of unique. So as you go across the page, just uh, understanding the structure of lamentations, you have this, understanding the structure of lamentations does not make this book any easier to swallow. No, no, it's so beautiful in the organization of it. It doesn't make it any easier to swallow the message. It's difficult to read of the pain, grief in the book due to the destruction of Jerusalem, the pillaging of the people. It is a lament which is similar to a funeral dirge. Some have said that Job pictures uh, an individual's grief, but what Lamentations does pictures a nation's grief. Okay, you get Job and he's decrying what has happened to him on an individual level, and there's a lot of lamenting going on uh, in the story of Job, and it's over his own personal situation. On this scale in Lamentations, it's, it's for a nation uh, getting together in chorus and talking about this. But a lament's a funeral dirge. You, you, that's, you know, what is Lamentations? And for years as a kid, dad had no idea what it was. It was just one of the harder books to spell in the Old Testament because it was really long and, and that, and weren't really sure what it is. But it, it is a, a funeral song. As you read through it, the question arises, and it rises very quickly. In Lamentations chapter 1, let's just start off the way someone reading this would. It says in verse 1, How doth the city sit solitary that was full of people? How has she become as a widow? She that was great among the nations and princess among the provinces, how is she some tributary or a person who's no longer important? She'll weep a sore in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers she hath none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her, and they are become her enemies. Judah has gone into captivity because of affliction and because of great servitude. She dwelleth among the heathen or the nation. She findeth no rest. All her persecutors overtook her between the straits. The ways of Zion do mourn because none come to the solemn feasts. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh. Her virgins are afflicted. And she is in bitterness. And so you read all of that, and you just kind of go, how? You see that starting off there? How did this happen? How in the world did we come to this point where the city that was teeming with people and had life and energy is suddenly empty and quiet? Well, verse 5 makes the answer. Her adversaries are the chief. Her enemies prosper. But then this statement that you might not really want to suggest, but it is true, for the Lord hath afflicted her for the multitude of her transgression, her children are gone into captivity before the enemy. The question arises, who caused the affliction? The answer's found, verse 5. The Lord did it. It is God who allows affliction, but the nation of Judah was the one who brought on the judgment. Let's talk a little bit about this before the service. Do you realize that God allows for people to go to an eternity in hell? 
He allows that to happen, but it's not necessarily his fault because people uh, have all made their decision that they're going to go their own way and do their own thing, and the judgment's brought on, not because God is a meanie. It's because individuals decide to do their own thing over the warnings of God. And that's what you have here in Jeremiah's statement is, yes, God allows the affliction, but you're not blaming God for this. The nation had... Well, look at all the prophets you have in the major and minor prophets. Most of them are serving before the Babylonian captivity, warning these people. They had people like this writing books and then making daily messages and illustrations, and yet these people ignored all of it. And so the Lord allowed for this. And as you read through this, the judgment is not something that is swift. It is uh, something that is, well, kind of harsh over time. You read through Lamentations, you begin, if you didn't have the accounts and the narratives and, and the stories in First, and, or excuse me, in, in First Kings and Second Kings about what happened and, and in Second Chronicles of what happened, you might not know what's going, going on, but in this case, Lamentations does give us hints in the story. I mean, it started with the process of starvation. You see this in Lamentations 4, verses 6 through 9, that eventually led to cannibalism people eating their own children, their own family members. Diseases began to fracture society. You find this in chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, and verse 17, chapter 3, and verse 45. And then world events on the outside led to terror on every side. I mean, they start reading all the newspapers, and they become very, very panicked. Besides everything else going on, they just are an emotional wreck. And eventually, the inhabitants were taken away from the city. And that's the very first statement made in chapter 1, verse 1. And so you read this, it wasn't an instantaneous thing because there was a siege that took part in this and everything and the length of that and all the things that go along with that. And so imagine being a people that for nine months you're sitting here and you're surrounded and this is what you have going on and disease is breaking out and there's a lack of food and it's just this slow process that eventually grinds these people into nothing and they're kind of blown like chaff out of the city in the end. The central part of this book though, is not about all the destruction, though it is about the lament. The central part of the book is the character of God. Who he is, what he's like. We said by the looking at the structure, as you see there at the beginning, that uh, there is this working down to the center chapter 3, and you get to the center of chapter 3, and it's those passages that you're so familiar with, and you've sung them in church, and at times perhaps haven't even realized that it's coming from one of the most discouraging books to read in the Scripture. Because you read in verse 22, which is Right into the center of this book and the, the center message of this. It says this, it's of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Kind of going, oh yeah, I, I've heard that song before. I've sung that. And even this, verse 24, the Lord is my portion. Okay, the Lord's the one I inherit. 
saith my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good. And you you might want to go through and underline in these verses the statement that God is good. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. He sitteth alone and keepeth silent because he hath borne it upon him. He putteth his mouth in the dust, if so be there may be hope. He giveth his cheek to him that smiteth him. He is filled full with reproach, for the Lord will not cast off for ever. But though he cause grief, yet will he have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies, for he doth not afflict willingly. Okay, there's a lot of people that think God's up there just going, oh, I can't wait. Oh, that person's going to get it. No, that's not God. He does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men to crush under his feet all the prisoners of the earth, to turn aside the right of a man before the face of the Most High, to subvert a case in his cause. The Lord approveth not. You see in the notes there, it's remembered that the mercies and compassion of God keep us from being completely consumed. He is faithful when we're not faithful. Think about that one passage of 1 Corinthians. It talks about God is faithful. And you go, when is that, that statement made in 1 Corinthians? Well, it's made when it's talking about us falling into sin, being tempted to sin. You're thinking, well, well maybe I can't escape from sin. No, God is faithful. With every temptation, will provide a what? A way of escape. Even though we're being unfaithful, God goes, okay, I'm going to give you an out here, an obvious out. You do not have to sin. There is a way to escape this. God's faithful. Uh, There's never an occasion where we can blame God for our sin. He's faithful when his people are not. His answer is to, as you read there, to seek him, to put your hope in him. Uh, the, the word I told you the, to mark there is the word good, but there's also the word hope. It's in verse 21, in verse number 24, in verse number 29, you see this word hope, something to put your confidence in, to look forward to, to look up to. So in the midst of dire circumstances where it seems like you're being crushed, uh, and it may be that you seem like you're being crushed by the very one that you should be fleeing to, you still flee to him. I mean, Job, when he's being crushed, where else does he go? And he is arguing with God, Lord, you're crushing me, but who is he running to? God, because God's his only hope, his only confidence. And for these people, the answer would be to seek him and to turn from, the sin, from sins to him. And that's what you're going to find at the challenge in Jeremiah when you get to Jeremiah 29 and you have the 70 years of captivity. The statement is, when my people turn to me, then I will release them from their captivity. Say the people of Jerusalem are kind of stubborn. It takes them 70 years to start figuring out this isn't what should have happened and actually turn back to their God. But God, 70 years later, is willing to hear their cry and begins to free them from their captivity. And even in this lamentation, there's these seeds of hope that if they would just pay attention to. 
The end of the book shows that Judah was returning to the Lord. There were some that actually saw what happened as judgment from God. The prayer at the end is one of confession. The suffering was punishment designed to correct, not to completely restore or to destroy. My guess is that some of these people, when it came to them turning back to God as they're in captivity and they realized their sins caused the destruction of Jerusalem, that some of them were praying back the words of God and were using chapter 5 of Lamentations as their confession, their prayer back to God. Because as you read uh, in the who is actually speaking there, it's the citizens of Jerusalem. I mean, those are the people that offended God. Those are the ones that went off to prison or captivity. The emotion of difficult events is what often starts a return to the Lord. You say, well, why do bad things happen to people? One of the reasons is because God is attempting to shift a person and their perspective to what is right. This is why when we get to Romans 8 and we talk through that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to the purpose, and you go, why do bad things happen to me? I'm a Christian. It shouldn't be happening to me. And it's because God is needing to tweak your perspective. You know, we, we sometimes think we're very you know, smart and we've got everything taken care of and then God suddenly brings something in and you suddenly realize, oh, I don't know as much as I thought I knew. I'm not as important as I thought I was. I'm not as great and powerful as I was thinking myself to be. I'm not as smart as I thought. And God brings in difficult situations for us to change and that change in other places is called repent or turn, uh, but uh, on an individual level, uh, but in this case, you have a book displaying that return is something that can happen on a national level. Okay, can you have a nation turn to, turn to God through the circumstances that they've gone through and the bad things they've gone through? Can they turn to God as a result of bad things happening to them? And the answer is God uses horrible events to draw people to himself. And so on a national level, you have this also. And the consequences might not be completely relieved, but a more important result when the, occurs when the nation recognizes God. Some people think, well, if I just turn back to God and, and call him my God and, and get myself in right order, then everything turns rosy. You know, the sun comes out, flowers start growing like they're supposed to, and, and uh, you know, the kids start behaving like they're supposed to. If I get right, the answer is no. Oftentimes, it's a very slow process. And, and you think about this captivity of 70 years. It wasn't on the 70th year to the day that all of a sudden people are all flocking back to Jerusalem at once. For some people, they go back to Jerusalem in several groups. I was just reading through Haggai uh, this uh, past week, and and Haggai is talking about these individuals that were there uh, when Nebuchadnezzar came through and drug everybody off, and they're back, and they're building that temple. And they're seeing what the temple looks like and what it used to be like, and they're crying over the fact of, you know, the temple's not that large and whatever, and God says, don't despise the day of little things. 
Uh, one day all the nations will come to this location, and he's talking about future things yet to us. But those people didn't all come back at once, too. They didn't get free from captivity all on the same day. No, it was a slow process where God started bringing them back by individuals and groups, and God did restore them. But sometimes there are people that think, well, if I repent and I'm sorry for sin, that all the circumstances change. The answer is no. God sometimes just leaves them there to remind us of our wanderings, help keep us in line. And so that's what you have here in this book of Lamentations. Uh, A couple of passages, just key verses. uh, We read through uh, Lamentations 1, Lamentations 3, 21 to 25. You say, well, what's in Lamentations 4, 19 through 22? You have this statement. Our persecutors are swifter than the eagles of heaven. They pursued us upon the mountains. They laid wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the anointed of the Lord, was taken in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the heathen. Rejoice, verse 21, be glad, O daughter of Edom, that dwellest in the land of Uz. The cup shall pass through unto thee. Thou shalt be drunken. Thou shalt make, the, shall be, make thyself naked. The punishment of thine iniquity is accomplished, O daughter of Zion. And in this statement, he will no more carry thee away into captivity. He will visit thine iniquity, O daughter of Edom. He will discover thy sins. And you say, well, what is that? That's a promise the Lord's saying. It's not going to last forever. And even those that brought this upon you, which we're knowing it's Nebuchadnezzar, but you do have the Edomites involved in this. God says, they'll get their judgment. I'll take care of it. Your captivity will end. And so uh, for them, they read that and it is exciting for them. But yeah. Okay. Not uh, a book to be read in some ways if you're already discouraged. But you still need to be reminded of the truth right in the core of it. And so if you have difficulties and you feel like you're being crushed, go back to Lamentations chapter 3 and remind yourself of the character of God. He is good and he's one to have hope in. Lord, we thank you for being our God, for being always faithful. May we be a reflection of what you're like, that we're faithful to you, We're not wandering from your side. But may we also recognize there are times where you just bring in things to, well, call us back to your side. And so as we read things like Lamentations, there may be even things in our own life that are going on, and it may be your call to get us to come back to a place where we're in right fellowship with you. We're saved, we're in right relation with you for eternity, but as far as our fellowship, it's, it's gotten away from what it should be, and maybe God's uh, brought some things in, and perhaps this evening it's just for some in this room recognizing that it is your call for a closer relationship and fellowship. 
And so, Lord, we pray that uh, we'd be reminded of who you are, what you're like, that you're not like anything like us, and we thank you for that, but may we be more like you. Reflect your glory and reflect who you are. In this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.